This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We've got a great episode for you this week, episode 277, entitled Different Types of Jewish Preexistence. This is a topic that I have talked about on occasion, and it has been the foundation of some of the series of podcasts that I've done within the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. But I find that time and time again, we need to revisit this crucially important subject, particularly because we see often that Christians are asked this question, whether they believe in the pre-existence of Jesus. And this question that gets asked is assuming that pre-existence only has one meaning. And what we're going to demonstrate today in episode 277 is that Jews who talked about pre-existence and whose understandings of pre-existence were inherited by early Christians, namely the New Testament authors, these Jews had three different ways of articulating pre-existence, and these three ways are not all the same. Therefore, it would be incorrect and imprecise, and arguably very confusing, to continue to describe pre-existence as if it's only one particular thing. And so I'm going to demonstrate in this week's episode three different ways in which Jews articulated the concept of pre-existence. I want to remind you, if you aren't already following me, be sure to check us out on Twitter, twitter.com slash onegodpodcast, O-N-E-G-O-D-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, twitter.com slash onegodpodcast. So, in this week's episode, we're going to talk about different types of pre-existence, and I'm going to describe them as option A, option B, and option C. So for the sake of clarification, we're going to have option A, and this is pre-existence in God's mind, plans, and purposes. Okay, we're going to see text to where Jews are quite clear that God has contemplated things before created them, meaning that God thought them up within his plans and purposes. And this, of course, would be a non-literal pre-existence. It is pre-existing only as a conceptual idea. And so we could talk about the pre-existence in God's mind, and yes, that is believing in a type of pre-existence, but it's not a conscious pre-existence. It's not a literal pre-existence. So option A is pre-existing in God's mind, plans, and purposes. Option B is a very important aspect, especially for New Testament Christology, and this is pre-existence as a personified attribute. Particularly, we see the personified attributes of God's word and God's wisdom being used in some sense to describe the pre-existence of the Messiah, 
in the New Testament, pre-existing as a personified attribute, specifically God's wisdom and God's word. So we could see wisdom pre-existing as a personification in the book of Proverbs, particularly Proverbs chapter 8, and you'll want to remember that because we're going to see Proverbs 8 identified when Jews describe their own understandings of pre-existence. But wisdom, which is the wise interaction that God has with his creation, this concept, this attribute, gets personified as a female figure because the Hebrew noun chokmah is grammatically feminine, and naturally the Greek equivalent, Sophia, is also grammatically feminine. So scholars will talk about Lady Wisdom or Mrs. Wisdom. And this, of course, is a personification which should not and absolutely cannot be confused with a conscious person, as if there was an actual female figure up there alongside Yahweh in heaven. That would be to misunderstand the basic definition of a personification at the most fundamental level. So we have the personified attribute of God's wisdom, Lady Wisdom, and we also have the personified attribute of God's word, God's speech, God's creative utterance. So in a passage like Isaiah 55, verse 11, where God sends out his word on a mission to accomplish his will and his purposes, but this is God's word being sent out. It actually is personified as if it is something that can be given orders and direction. But this word, like wisdom, is a personification. It is not a conscious person. The Hebrew noun devar is grammatically masculine, so we could call the word Mr. Word. And the Greek equivalent logos is also grammatically masculine, so personifying the logos could be understood as a he. But again, it would be the most basic and fundamental misunderstanding to confuse a personification with an actual person. Now, it's important to realize that option B, preexistence as a personified attribute, is not the same thing as option A, preexisting in God's mind, plans, and purposes. They're not the same thing. Now, I believe that they could actually coexist with one another. And I do think it's possible that some New Testament authors actually believe in option A and option B, but they're not the same thing. For something to pre-exist in God's mind is not the same thing as God personifying one of his attributes, namely his word or his wisdom. And by the New Testament times, word and wisdom were effectively synonyms in function and description. But those are two separate things, and we need to keep that in mind. Our third option, option C, would be literal preexistence. Literal preexistence as in something literally, actually, genuinely preexisting creation. This would be a conscious preexistence. The doctrine of the Trinity asserts that the Son of God consciously pre-existed his birth in a literal manner. So this is not the same thing as pre-existing in God's mind, 
which would be a non-literal, conceptual pre-existence. Option C would be a conscious, breathing, actually thinking, actually having its own existence, being a real, tangible person prior to creation and, of course, prior to the Incarnation. That is what the Doctrine of the Trinity asserts. So we've got three different types of pre-existence. Option A, pre-existing in God's mind, plans, and purposes. Option B, pre-existing as a personified attribute, God's wisdom and God's word. And option C, literal pre-existence, consciously pre-existing. Now, I'm not suggesting that these are three options and you should pick the one that is best suited for your own reading of the Bible. I'm indicating that these are three different ways in which Jews understood and articulated their own views of pre-existence. And of course, I'm suggesting that option A and option B both exist in the New Testament, and there are even some authors that seem to indicate that they believe and teach both option A and option B. So let's move to looking at Jewish preexistence. This is our second point. Point one is defining preexistence. Point number two is examples of preexistence from Jewish literature. It's very important that we set the New Testament text in their context, specifically in their Jewish context. I can't believe that I have to explain this over and over to some people. Some people question why it is that I use extra-biblical sources to help explain the Bible. And my answer is that we can't interpret the Bible in a vacuum. It didn't just drop down out of heaven. It was written in the context of Jewish literary conventions. It was written in the context of Jewish thought, particularly Second Temple Jewish thought. And it interacted with those ideas. It challenged some of those ideas. It innovated on some of those ideas. And of course, with certain things like monotheism, it maintained and continued some of those ideas. So I'm not suggesting that these passages from Jewish literature are to be understood at the same level as Christian scripture. I'm not saying anything like that at all. I'm saying that if we want to understand these texts from early Christians, we have to put them in their context, in the context of the New Testament, which is effectively, at least for the most part, a Jewish Christian composition of works, apart from perhaps the writings of Luke. We have to set that in its context of Jewish thought. So in no particular order, I'm going to read through and discuss some passages from Jewish literature that is relevant to the time of the writing of the New Testament documents. The first reference I'm going to look at is from the Babylonian Talmud. This particular reference shows up in two places, indicating that it was recorded more than once, which suggests it is a quite popular saying from the rabbis. So in Babylonian Talmud, Pesahim 54a, and also it's in Nidarim 39b, we have the following. Seven things were created before the world was made. And these are they. The Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the house of the sanctuary, and the name of the Messiah. Now the passage is going to go on and it's going to show from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, 
passages that indicate that these things seemingly pre-existed. And I want to look at those. So in describing the Torah, it quotes Proverbs 8, verse 22, where it says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before the works of old. That's interesting because Proverbs 8, verse 22, you can go back and look, is actually a reference to personified wisdom. But Jews quickly came to understand and define personified wisdom in terms of coalescing in the law of Moses. And so the understanding that the law was the place where you would find God's wise instruction, the Jews would start to look at those passages in Proverbs referring to wisdom, and they would just understand that as now being found in God's law. So the preexistence of the Torah is used by looking at Proverbs 8, verse 22. Repentance, which is certainly a concept that would be something preexisting in God's mind, plans, and purposes, they pull from Psalm 90, verse 2 which says, before the mountains were brought forth, even before you have formed the earth and the world, you turn man to destruction and say, repent, you sons of men. So they are noting, these Jews are noting, that prior to the creation of the earth and the world, God says that people need to repent, indicating their repentance was prior to creation, according to their reading of Psalm 90, verse 2. They also see the Garden of Eden as pre-existing. It says in Genesis 2.8 that the Lord God planted a Garden of Eden from aforetime. And it's that reference from beforetime or aforetime that indicates that the Garden pre-existed the creation. Gehenna, the place of destruction on the Day of Judgment, they draw from Isaiah 30, verse 33, which says that for Topet is ordained from old. So they see even the location of Gehenna is something that is ordained from old. The throne of glory, which is an actual item, it says in Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from of old. So that would seem to indicate Option C, literal pre-existence. An actual throne was established from of old. The sixth thing is the house of the sanctuary. And they read from Jeremiah 17, verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So that would be another reference to literal pre-existence. They thought that the actual sanctuary, the house of the sanctuary, was something that pre-existed. And then it comes to the name of the Messiah. Now, I do want to point out here that they're not saying that it's the person of the Messiah. It's not the actual breathing conscious Messiah. It is simply his name. God had his name in mind. And they quote from Psalm 72, verse 17, which says, his name shall endure forever and has existed before the sun. So that is all from these tractates from the Babylonian Talmud, where they indicate several things, particularly seven of them, that pre-exist, 
and they make the arguments of preexistence by drawing on passages from the Bible. So we can see some interesting things there. Now, I think it's interesting that we do have a combination of preexistence discussions that are going on there. We can see that actual things are preexisting. That would be option C, like the throne or the house of the sanctuary. We seem to have this overlapping of option A and option B. We have the Torah, which is the instructions that God gave to Moses in creating the Mosaic Covenant. But their reference for the Torah is actually drawing from Proverbs 8, verse 22, which would be preexistence option B, the preexisting of a personified attribute, personified word. So it's interesting that they're overlapping those things. And of course, repentance preexisting would be a concept that would be option A. And then we have locations, the Garden of Eden and Gehenna. And it's difficult to know which of those is being placed there, but we seem to have a variety of ways in which preexistence is used just in this one text. And this one text, of course, was important enough that it was actually listed twice in the Babylonian Talmud. Now, later in the tractate Pesahim, it says, quote, there were two things that entered into God's mind to create on the eve of the Sabbath. That is in the same reference, Pesahim 54a. And the two things in the context that this Jewish writer is suggesting that entered into God's mind are the actual hole in the ground for Gehenna and the fire of Gehenna. But he describes these things as actually entering into God's mind in order that he might create on the eve of the Sabbath, so on the eve of the seventh day. So this, of course, would be preexistence option A in the mind and plans of God. So there we have Gehenna and the actual fire of Gehenna being in the mind, plans, and purposes of God. Now the Targum Zechariah, chapter 4 and verse 7, talks a little bit about the preexistence of the Messiah in a similar way that we've seen in the Babylonian Talmud. So in Targum Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7, it says, God will reveal his Messiah whose name is spoken from the beginning. That's interesting. The Messiah is not the person who preexists. It's simply his name. The name is spoken from the beginning. It's very interesting that the Jews who understand the Messiah as the son of David, as the descendant of Judah, as a member of Israel, as a son of Abraham. They don't want to say that the actual Messiah was from the beginning. They want to say that it's just his name that was spoken from the beginning. And that was, of course, their Targum reading of Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. So we've seen evidence that Jews thought that the name of the Messiah preexisted from at least two texts now, from Psalm 72, 17, and from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Let's move on to another text. This other text is 2 Baruch, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It's a very interesting passage. This is going to talk about the pre-existence of paradise. And it says, The Lord said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Baruch. Baruch is, of course, Jeremiah's scribe. Quote, 
this city, namely Jerusalem, will be delivered up for a time. The passage goes on. Or do you not think that this is the city of which I said, quote, on the palms of my hands I have carved you? That's a quote from Isaiah 49, verse 16. The passage goes on. It is not this building that is in your midst now. It is that which will be revealed with me that was already prepared from the moment I decided to create paradise. And I showed it to Adam before he sinned, but when he transgressed the commandment, it was taken away from him, as also paradise. After these things, I showed it to my servant Abraham. Passage goes on. And I showed it to Moses on Mount Sinai. Passage goes on. Behold, now it is preserved with me, as also paradise. That's 2 Baruch chapter 4, verses 1-7. through seven. So we can see that Jerusalem, the city, and also paradise were things that were already prepared. In fact, we could see that Jerusalem was something that was already prepared in God's mind, plans, and purposes, and it was revealed to Adam, perhaps in a visionary experience. It was also revealed to Abraham, and it was revealed to Moses. But right now, God says to Baruch that it is preserved with me as also paradise, the paradise that was taken away from Adam, and now it is also with God. But there we can have a location that seemingly pre-existed in God's prepared mind. That would be option A, pre-existing in God's mind, plans, and purposes. We'll look at a few passages here from Genesis Rabbah. Genesis Rabbah is a little bit after the New Testament by a few centuries, but it's interesting how often it talks about the concept of pre-existence. So Genesis Rabbah is a commentary on the book of Genesis, and it's going to be on various verses of Genesis. So this particular quote is from Genesis Rabbah, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In human practice, when a mortal king builds a palace, he builds it not with his own skill, but with the skill of an architect. The architect, moreover, does not build it out of his head, but employs plans and diagrams to know how to arrange the chambers and the wicked doors. Thus, God consulted the Torah and created the world. While the Torah declares, in the beginning God created, that's Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the phrase beginning refers to the Torah, as in the verse, quote, the Lord made me from the beginning of his way. That's from Proverbs 8, verse 22. So this author is putting together two passages, and it's looking at the phrase beginning in Genesis 1-1, and of course the phrase beginning in Proverbs 8, verse 22. And he's doing so to indicate that God, as a good king, and functioning as the architect of the heavens and the earth, when God created the world, he consulted a plan. It actually says plans and diagrams. But what is that plan that God consulted? Well, God consulted the Torah because it indicates in Proverbs 8, verse 22, that the Lord made me at the beginning of his ways. And you could see there again that a passage about 
God's wisdom, God's personified wisdom, is being understood by Jews to refer to God's law. And so we can see here the combination of options A, pre-existing in God's mind, plans, and purposes, and option B, pre-existing as a personified attribute. They're overlapping them. They're not the same thing, though. Even though it says that the architect employs diagrams and plans, that's obviously pre-existing in the plans of God, but it's also clearly referencing a passage that deals with personified wisdom. And this is, of course, the ways in which Jews regularly would talk about pre-existing in regard to the creation of the heavens and the earth. Here's another passage from Genesis Rabbah. This is from chapter 1, verse 4. This one is interesting because, like we saw in the Babylonian Talmud, Babylonian Talmud had seven things that pre-existed creation, but Genesis Rabbah is going to have six things pre-existing creation. So in Genesis Rabbah, chapter 1, verse 4, it says six things preceded the creation of the world. Some of them were already created, while the creation of the others was already contemplated. I'll stop right there before I read on any further. And so here he's going to make the distinction that some were actually created. That would be created, option C, literally pre-existing. And others were contemplated, namely pre-existing in God's mind, plans, and purposes. That would be option A. So it's making the distinction, and it's going to tell us what those six things are and whether they literally pre-existed or if they were contemplated in God's mind, plans, and purposes. So the passage goes on, and it says, The Torah and the throne of glory were created. And here it says, The Torah, for it is written, The Lord made me from the beginning of his way, prior to his works of old. Again, we can see Proverbs 8, verse 22, being used to describe the law, the Torah, and overlapping it with the understanding of God's wisdom. And then we can see the description of the throne of glory, and it says in Psalm 93, verse 2, that's the passage they're using to demonstrate this point, where it says, Thy throne is established of old. So there they think that the Torah and the throne of glory actually pre-existed. Okay? And then it says the creation of the patriarchs was contemplated. So now we have human beings. We have the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very important people in the history of Israel and in the creation of the Israelite nation. These persons, do these persons consciously pre-exist their birth? No. They were contemplated. They were contemplated. They were in God's mind, plans, and purposes. And the passage that this Jewish author uses to substantiate the contemplation of the patriarchs is Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, which says, I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first season. Then he talks about the creation of Israel. Israel, the nation, was contemplated. Again, thousands and thousands of people, the Israelites, the children of Israel, did they consciously pre-exist their birth? No. Human beings don't consciously pre-exist their birth. Human beings are contemplated in 
the plans and purposes of God. And the passage that the author uses to demonstrate this point is Psalm 74, verse 2, which says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased aforetime. And then it goes on and it lists the fifth thing, the creation of the temple. The temple was actually contemplated. That's interesting. The temple is not literally pre-existing. The temple also is something that was contemplated and it lists Jeremiah 17, 12. We've seen this already. The throne of glory, your throne of glory on high from the beginning, the place of our sanctuary. And then we get, interestingly enough, the name of the Messiah again. And guess what? The name of the Messiah, did the name of the Messiah actually pre-exist or was it contemplated? Answer, it was contemplated. The name of the Messiah was contemplated for it's written. And again, they quote Psalm 72, 17. So we have some interesting things here. We have, again, a way of distinguishing different types of pre-existence. Something that literally pre-existed and something that was contemplated in God's mind. And what's interesting is that whenever they're talking about persons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, and not even the Messiah, just the name of the Messiah, persons are in the plans and purposes of God. They're contemplated. They are not actually created before the heavens and the earth. And that's Genesis Rabbah, chapter 1, verse 4. A few more to make our point. I'm not even being exhaustive. In fact, I'll leave the full list of them in the notes for this particular episode. You can go back and read them on your own. So in Genesis Rabbah, chapter 14, verse 4, it says, The royal Messiah will not come until all the persons whom God contemplated creating have been created. That's interesting. The Messiah is not going to come until all of these people that God contemplated creating. Namely, these people were in God's mind, plans, and purposes. We have another interesting one where Moses is speaking in this um, pseudepigraphical work, the Testament of Moses, chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. So Moses says, But God did design and devise me, God prepared me from the beginning of the world to be the mediator of his covenant. That's very interesting, very fascinating. Moses sees himself in this particular work as someone who is so important in the plans of God that God devised him and designed him and prepared him. This is not a conscious preexistence of Moses. This indicates that he was in God's designs. That's pre-existence option A. We have another work, another pseudepigraphical work, Joseph and Asenath. This is in reference to the Joseph in the latter part of the book of Genesis. So in this passage, chapter 8, verse 9, Joseph is praying and he says to God, Number her, namely number Asenath, among your people that you have chosen before all things came into being. That's very interesting. So Joseph is praying that this girl, Asenath, would be chosen and elect among the people of God, namely the people that God has chosen before 
God created all things, indicating that God had chosen and contemplated his people, the people of God, prior to creation. This would suggest that the people of God, the elect people of God, pre-exist in God's mind, plans, and purposes. That's option A. And then a few more references this time from the Qumran scrolls, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. In particular, this one is from the document 1QS3, verses 15 through 16, which says, From the God of knowledge stems all there is and all that there shall be. Before they existed, he made all their plans. And when they came into being, they will execute all their works in compliance with his instructions according to his glorious design, without altering anything. Again, it's another reference to God having plans and purposes. A little bit later, in 1QS, we get 1QS 11.11, which says, By God's knowledge, everything shall come into being, and all that does exist, God establishes with his calculations, and nothing is done outside of him which indicates that God has plans and purposes, his knowledge, his calculations, and that this is the blueprint of his creation. So we have lots of examples of Jewish preexistence with option A in the purposes, plans, and mind of God. We have a few examples of preexisting as a personified attribute. We've seen examples of Proverbs 8 being quoted where Lady Wisdom, personified wisdom, is used. And we also have some examples in Jewish literature of literal preexistence. Literal preexistence is not referring to persons. Literal preexistence comes in the form of very important things. So I think it's important for us when we're talking about preexistence to ask the question, what sort of preexistence do you mean? Do I think that Jesus preexisted? Well, yes, depending on what you mean. Jesus preexisted in option A, in the mind, plans, and purposes of God, and Jesus also preexisted as a personified attribute. Jesus preexisted as God's word, and Jesus preexisted as God's wisdom. But I don't think it's option C, literal conscious preexistence. But it's quite clear that Jews believed and articulated all three of those types of preexistence. So there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue this discussion and we look at the sorts of Jewish preexistence that we actually find in the New Testament. Now that we have option A, option B, and option C, we can now move to the New Testament, set it in its Jewish context, and ask what sort of preexistence do we see the New Testament authors articulating about Jesus. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound, non-negotiable truths of the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation and appreciation for what you get out of the podcast, please check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.